Hi, I'm Billy Shore. We are in Boston with two guests, Ken Oranger, who I've known for a long time because he's a great chef in this city and in other places, a James Beard Award winner, uh, and for five years had my all-time favorite restaurant called Earth at Hidden Pond up in Kennebunkport. Welcome, Ken. Thank you, Billy. Psyched to be here. And Michael Murphy, who I'm just getting to know, but I know from his TED Talk, which uh, is the way a lot of people know him. Wait, I'm with the guy that gave a TED Talk? This is going to be crazy. You're with the guy who gave a TED Talk. And you're here, Michael, you're an architect with Mass Design, uh, but one of the reasons you two are together is because Michael specifically said, I'd like to do this with, if you do, if you do it with chefs, I'd like to do it with Ken Oranger. So tell us why you even said that. <laughs> yeah, I'm psyched to be here and psyched to, to meet Ken as well. I, you know... Um, we got our start uh, working across down the street from uh, from Copa. Okay, so you knew the restaurant. I knew their restaurant and uh, and the grinder. I heard and the grinder, which is an incredible best sandwich in Boston for sure. Wait, what goes into the grinder? Prosciutto, but really great prosciutto. Uh, usually twenty four uh, month of age from Italy. We have uh, soppressata, which is uh, artisanal salami that we get. Uh, it changes a lot, but um, a lot of it comes from an amazing salumeria out in um, the Bay Area. Then there's uh, mortadella, which is my favorite, actually. So mortadella, which we, same thing, we import from uh, Emilia-Romagna, um, basically Bologna. And then there's um, provolone cheese. There is a little bit of um, lettuce, balsamic vinegar, and then we have a special kind of ciabatta that um, is made for us as well. And then the hot peppers, which uh, are kind of um, like a pepperoncino mixed with uh, some hot cherry peppers and, uh, and chopped up, made into like a little bit of a relish. So it's, uh, again, it's kind of uh, has the acidity, uh, but some heat and the, the creaminess and the sharpness from the provolone. And again, just all the meats of like really high quality and integrity um, make for a amazing sandwich that I crave like nothing else. It could be that Michael knows the grinder as well, if not better than you do. (laughs) (laughs) Seems possible. And I know, Ken, if you uh, had not been a chef, you might have been an architect. If you hadn't been an architect, would you have been a chef, Michael? Oh, I grew up uh, working in kitchens since I was 13 years old. Uh, You know, Poughkeepsie, New York has the Culinary Institute of America where Ken went. So all the chefs in the the big and the small restaurants usually graduated from there. So that's funny. I I worked... (laughs) When I was in culinary school, I worked in Poughkeepsie, um, in downtown Poughkeepsie. At uh, oh my God, this restaurant was a nightmare, but uh, but it, it paid the bills. It was, I was like, man, here I am. I'm going to school. I'm learning all these amazing things, and I would go there and uh, cook some pretty lousy food. But uh, hey, it paid the bills. And you got to learn. Yeah, my so hope is uh, we turn Poughkeepsie into a food destination. So maybe you can help with this. <laughs> uh, so you knew of. You knew who Ken was, and you knew of his of his restaurants and his cooking. Well, I think being here in Boston, you know, you got to uh, get a taste of the best restaurants around, and uh, they have the best restaurants around. In fact, I met my uh, first date of my now wife was at Uni. Really? <laughs> um, and Michael, you do extraordinary work, really thinking about design in ways that create social change. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited. But I'd like to start by um, understanding how you both kind of got started doing what you're doing. And Ken, I think I'd read that you started getting interested in cooking almost at the age of six uh, at your, yeah. you know, at, at your mom's knees, so to speak. Um, <laughs> tell us about it, because it's been quite a quite a ride. Well, it's definitely been quite a ride. I, I'm lucky. I mean, I went to business school, but I told all my friends who used to kind of, uh, you know, make fun of me, 
like, oh, you know, why are you taking, you know, this course in like hotel management? Why are you taking this course in all sorts of hospitality type classes when I went to basically, you know, full on accounting finance school? And I was like, listen, when you guys are miserable sitting behind your, you know, your kiosks and, and your cubicles and, you know, just hanging out, I'm going to be doing what I love every day. And, and it's something that ever since I was, again, six years old, I just loved cooking, loved food, and, uh, and I was on a path pretty much uh, ever since just to, uh, to follow it. So there's no doubt that you, even from the time you were little that you were headed towards oh, this I, career. I've never done anything else. I mean, I, I cut lawns once, I think, when I was like 12. But other than that, every job and everything that I've ever even thought of to do with my life was re- revolved around food and uh, cooking. And uh, also graduate of the Culinary Institute of America? Yeah. And then what were, what were kind of the formative first influences in terms of your career? I mean, again, I I was so hungry and, and so, like, again, on a path that uh, I wanted to work in the best kitchens and really kind of understand the discipline, what it took to, to be successful in this business. So... I uh, went and worked with David Burke, who was then at the River Cafe, uh, which was an amazingly creative restaurant, I think, way ahead of its time. And then uh, went and worked with uh, Jean-Georges, who had a restaurant in Boston, actually, at that time, and really, again, learned creativity and and different ways of of thinking about food. And then I also worked with... uh, you know, talking about just food and where it comes from, I worked with uh, George and Joanne at Al Forno as uh, their pastry chef, which was my first job out of culinary school. Uh, and that's the first time I really learned about, uh, like, organics. Like, they had one farmer in Little Compton, Rhode Island, that would pretty much grow everything for them. And, and they would drive over there every day and pick up. We had no walk-ins. We had none of that. So they would be picking up all the produce for the restaurant every day. And without having a walk-in refrigerator, which uh, a lot of restaurants have that luxury where you can buy produce maybe once or twice a week or or you can buy fish, uh, you know, and meat, uh, you know, two or three times a week. The great thing about this was that uh, we would basically contact the farmer, find out what they had, and literally send... uh, a truck down to pick up everything in the back of a pickup truck. So every day it was an adventure to kind of know what you'd be getting. And it wouldn't be a ton of food, uh, but it would allow you to be uh, inspired by what you're getting in and, and change the menu on a daily basis, which, uh, again, looking back at it, is something that kind of shaped the way that uh, that I worked in all my restaurants once I owned them, where we changed the menu on a daily basis. And how many restaurants now? Uh, <laughs> you, you, you had to look up and let's see. Well, think we, for a minute. Well, we have Toro in Boston, Toro in New York. We just opened Toro in Dubai. We have Toro in Bangkok. And then we have Little Donkey in Cambridge, Uni, and uh, Copa. Wow. Dubai and Bangkok. We're international, Billy. Um, now, we're all influenced, Michael, by family in lots of different ways. And Ken is talking about being influenced by uh, his mom in the kitchen. Um, I got from watching your TED Talk that uh, your dad was a pretty uh, profound influence on you, at least in terms of a, during a period where he was sick and you, you all were re- uh, restoring the house or renovating parts of the house. Um, is that really how you got involved in design and architecture work? Uh, it is definitely how I got inspired to see that there was something greater um, to our built environment, to architecture, the places we live, than just a kind of casing for our daily lives, but actually something that kind of motivates us to live a better life, potentially. I was um, 
I was living abroad, actually, trying to find, you know, it was kind of post-college malaise. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And um, it was at that time my dad got very sick with cancer. And uh, I moved home immediately to, you know, just kind of sit on death watch with him. And I moved back to my hometown of uh, Poughkeepsie, New York. So I was wondering if you went to the culinary in Poughkeepsie, Ken, then we have this other overlap. And Poughkeepsie uh, is this uh, town in the Hudson River north of uh, New York City, about 90 miles uh, but it's also seen kind of hard times. It hasn't had a lot of development uh, over the last 50 years. And um, my dad had always kind of chipped away at restoring this old home that we had we had there from the 1890s. And uh, I didn't know what to do with myself when I got home. It was in the winter. It was February. It was 2005, I think. And uh, I just helped him kind of try to finish this house before, um, you know, he might pass away. In that process of uh, uh, laying sheetrock and restoring old windows and fixing an old porch, I remember he said to me that uh, the house actually had saved his life. Working on this house had saved his life. And he was feeling better. He was healthier. He had gone into remission. It was an amazingly powerful moment. And uh, it was then and there that I really was convinced I had to kind of go into architecture and, and do something else with uh, try to try to see that uh, inspiration in other people's lives and in other communities. Is that stuff you even knew how to do? No, I definitely did not know how to do it. I wouldn't even know where to start. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I, I, I kind of leaned on some friends and my my folks, and you know, an uncle was a contractor, and he came in and helped us out, and we just kind of figured it out. It was it was an amazing experience. You know, you kind of kind of weave your uh, sweat and labor into the places you live, and you know, you you step you step after step away after a couple of weeks, and you see that you've done something really profound. It's a really empowering uh, experience. You ended up uh, at architecture school at Harvard. Uh, that's correct. I came here to Boston. I I remember I got into, um, I applied to so many schools because I was, was going to hire someone who's never studied any architecture before. I had studied uh, literature and English literature in college. And so when I got into Harvard, I was convinced it was the wrong Michael Murphy. You know? <laughs> There's a lot of them in Boston, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I was really, really lucky to come here and uh, spend my formative years learning design in, in Boston. And then the works uh, evolved in a lot of ways. Your work, uh, certainly one of the things that really struck me was this notion that architecture is not neutral, that it could hurt or it could heal. And so you've been involved in actually building hospitals in places around the world uh, where the architecture is an actual factor in things like infection control. Talk a little bit about that because I, I, I always think about architecture from an aesthetic point of view, uh, whether it's I'm walking into one of Ken's restaurants, which are gorgeous, or any type of project, I think about, you know, how it looks. But I, I, I don't think about it as functionally as it could actually have an impact on whether patients get healthy. Yeah, no, it's it's an important distinction. Um, you know, we spend 90% of our lives in buildings, we spend, you know, almost all of, the, all of our lives inside of structures. And um, to say that they don't shape our lives or our ability to live or you know, make more productive food or get healthier in environments. I think there's a, a sense in all of us that they are doing something else to us that we may not fully understand at all times. And sometimes it's very clear what they're doing to us, like in spaces like uh, prisons or in hospitals. There's clear behavior uh, that's being shaped by the by the uh, the functioning design or the lack of functioning design of, of facilities. But I didn't really know that when I went to architecture school. Um, I kind of learned that when I met this amazing Boston doctor named Paul Farmer, who leads this organization called Partners in Health. And 
his colleagues uh, who are really changing lives around the world through through a kind of do whatever it takes uh, medical enterprise. Partners in Health is you know, one of the greatest nonprofits in the world. Um, and I met him when I was a student. He was giving a lecture, and uh, he was talking about all the buildings that they were building, hospitals and clinics in Haiti and in Rwanda and uh, homes that they were building for really, really impoverished communities. And um, he sort of said, you know, where are the architects? Where, why aren't architects figuring out how to come and help us do what we're trying to do? We're, we have to do it ourselves. We have to find ways to uh, solve these problems in our, in our own way. And uh, where's the design community? Why haven't they stepped up? And I, I, it was kind of a call to action, and I think um, reminded me of kind of things that my father had said, like these things are shaping, this gave me hope to live my life. It gave me dignity. And here you have someone changing lives around the world without the expertise of the thing I was studying. Uh, so I volunteered with his organization. I moved to Rwanda. When I first landed in Rwanda, uh, it was, well, first of all, it was the middle of the night, so it was pitch black, and uh, I got picked up by... Uh, a doctor working with Partners in Health, whose name is uh, Michael Rich, whose father was a contractor here uh, in Natick, actually. So really had a sense of how a building goes together. And I just remember him picking me up and driving me in the middle of the night uh, out to their rural healthcare setting about two hours east. So um, I saw nothing of the countryside, you know, <laughs> on my way out there. Uh, and I just remember him kind of feeling like, oh, why do I have this stupid architect I have to babysit for a couple of weeks here? Um, but over time, uh, Michael and I, you know, sort of put, you know, shared plans and talked about the design of some of the the hospital that they had they were working on, and we became really close friends. And he, he's become one of our biggest allies and advocates. And um, when we got out to this medical center, it was this very a dry part of the country, lowland, you know, farming all around. And it was a, also on the site of a, an old Belgian mine. And uh, the Belgian colonial period had these mining compounds around the country. But this one in particular had an entire village that was built uh, probably around the 20s and had this actually beautiful old architecture um, uh, that you might see in Brussels or something, but in these old dilapidated houses that were falling down and people were squatting in them. And it had kind of the hints or remnants of an old village uh, that were around the kind of uh, the industrial mine and then a hospital that was uh, attached to it. And so Partners in Health had, had, had worked to kind of invest in infrastructure and buildings in that area. Um, and uh, it was incredible to see the different layers of of folks who had lived in this, what seemed like the furthest place I could ever go and actually was incredibly vibrant with, uh, with lots of different, um, you know, production of resource extraction and health, health production and close to a, a, a bustling town, uh, in the Eastern part of the country. Um, and I found my, you know, purpose, you know, I found like a, a reason for architecture that matters in the world. You know, these folks not only did they care about it, but they needed it desperately to do what they were trying to do. And it wasn't this, uh, what you were referring to before, kind of only aesthetics, only the privilege to get to experience great architecture and pay for it, or only those who care about it really understand it. No, this was essential rights. You know, that's where I saw you know, the foundation of my discipline really emerge and give me purpose to, to continue it. So were you able to get, uh, again, the satisfaction out of Again, say creatively saying, okay, they only have X amount of people to do this or X amount of, uh, of resources. Is it something that could get frustrating? Again, just being 
a person like, of course, you could say, okay, in that part of the world, they might build like just a small little uh, structure that can act as a hospital, or is it something that you would say, okay, well, we could do more with it and and try and do more with it? Yeah, there's. I, I learned, you know, even though there was limited resources in this small rural village we were living in, you know, people are incredibly resourceful. It's like when there's a lack of resources, you found incredible resourcefulness. And I think the inverse is happening in our built environment here in the U.S., for example, where you have kind of resource excess, there's like design paralysis. You, know, you can do anything. I don't know what to do. Well, when there's very few, you know, tools around, you actually find how to you know, do a lot of workarounds and use design actually really creatively to, to find solutions with the materials you have in front of us. So I found that to be actually quite liberating, actually. How do you think about it, Ken, as a restaurateur? It's to a, a, for a different purpose, obviously not necessarily related to health, but design is such an important ingredient. And I know a lot of restaurateurs and chefs who spend uh, almost as much time on the design of their restaurant, uh, at least up front, as they do on the food. How do you think about what you're trying to, I guess, get across to your guests? Well, design is pretty much my other passion. And, and if I wasn't a chef, I would definitely be you know, an architect. It's something that's always... Always fascinate me. So I've pretty much uh, designed with you know the help of experts uh, all the restaurants, and uh, I think um, it's beyond important because again, you know, we spend ninety percent of our time, especially chefs, we spend so much time. You know, we work the sixteen-hour days, eighteen-hour days, and you have to create an environment that uh, can pretty much uh, make everybody happy, not just the guests, but uh, you know, but our staff, and it also has to inspire creativity. And I think, uh, again, if you're sitting in a basement of some depressing building, it's hard for anybody to be creative. You can't force it. And especially in, in you know, our end of the, of the business, I think uh, to be able to look out a window, you know, at, at Clio, which is now Uni, you know, I put a, a window into the kitchen and everyone's like on Mass Ave. Everyone's like, "Why would you put this huge window looking into the kitchen?" I, and so you can see it, it from, look in from the street. Yeah, you can look yep. in from the street. I was like, "Well, if you're in the restaurant already, then you already have people that are going to spend money." I said. So I said, "You know, we need to create the drama that can intrigue people from outside just to look in when they're walking by, and uh, and plus, it's going to give us the sunlight all day long." And um, so we would have people literally standing looking in the window for you know, 15 minutes at a time or 20 minutes at a time and all these curious people. And then they would save up their money and say, you know, I need to go to that restaurant because they could see the drama and it just lured them in. And, and uh, you know, it's just the simplest uh, design element. But, uh, but again, it makes sense. So, And part of your success is based on this kind of constant innovation, bringing um, – the flavors of other cultures to your customers. This notion of creativity. Could you say a little bit more about how do how do you how do you personally fuel yours? I, I, I'm sure design is an important element. What else do you do to stay as creative over such a long period of time? You're known for that. Well, creativity again, it's it, it really can't be forced, and it can the inspiration can come from anything. And I think um, as with probably both of you, you know, travel always. Uh, inspires me uh, to be creative because it takes you out of your comfort zone and it and it uh, kind of forces you to, to think about things a lot differently and seeing again how people are cooking food in Rwanda or how the you know how they're making lechon in Haiti or whatever you know with just one little cast iron uh, pot on the side of the road 
So I think uh, a lot of these things, um, again, uh, you can look at them and say, okay, well, if they can make this crispy pork on the side of the road in a cast iron pan, how can I kind of do so much more with uh, with a crispy pork in my kitchen? And you kind of go back and you say, okay, well, if they're just serving it plain with a squeeze of lime juice, for instance, I you know I may see it and say that's the best piece of pork I've ever eaten, but you know I'm gonna take that inspiration and you know we'll get a cast iron pan and we'll uh, we'll cook the pork a certain way, but then we'll uh, we'll take it in a whole other direction and say okay well we're gonna do it like that, but then we're gonna make a Malaysian curry because I think uh, it's a little bit too rich on its own and and if we add spices to it and we had turmeric and we had chilies and we had lemongrass and we had ginger. Again, we have something that can take something that's so simple, but uh, bring it uh, into a whole different direction where people can understand these flavors that they really haven't had that often and, and take them to a different place. Michael, I'm sure that uh, as an architect, uh, a lot of what you learn comes from the cultures that you visit. You not only bring skills and experience, but you must take them away as well. Let's use Rwanda. Uh, keep Rwanda as the example we started with. Um, actually impacts what your final product looks like yeah i mean uh, there's no i don't think there is a way to not have that influence the architecture i mean it's great architecture is of a place and it's wholly unique and um one of the most amazing things about living in this rural mountain village we you know rarely had electricity was uh and we went down to this local restaurant in the village where we had warm beers that were kind of kept cool in a you know bucket of water uh, sorghum beers from Uganda, which were really delicious. Uh, you know, was that allowing that kind of um, the place and the materiality and the soil and the climate to help influence the the architecture that has to manifest to solve these bigger issues like national health care and, uh, you know, most up-to-date um, designs for laboratories and the way in which maternity care is evolving and has to be uh, uh, developed in, in the architecture. So the functionality of this medical facility to be um, a, um, a prototype of a, let's say, a high, uh, the, the furthest advance that they have for their, for their medical system, but also being influenced by the place in which you're in, uh, is what makes architecture so, I think, incredible, right? It is always adapting to its location, even if it's using prototypes that have been, you know, universally deployed. So in Rwanda, what was one of the most inspiring things was this local volcanic stone, which we found in abundance around the area. Um, <clears throat> but a lot of the farmers actually would kind of give it away for free because it was a nuisance to them uh, farming in their fields. It was cluttering up the field? Yeah, it was sort of right under the topsoil. And so you could see piles of it along the road. Uh, but it's this beautiful kind of pumice stone, this very light, porous, uh, uh, gray rock. And... Um, it's absolutely stunning when you cut it open. It has this sort of, you know, it's been un in the ground, so it's kind of covered in soil, almost black on the exterior. But when you cut it open, it has this sort of dark gray, almost blue hue. And um, we were super inspired by this stone. And we asked, it would be very expensive to use a stone in the U.S. to wrap a building, but it was very inexpensive to wrap it in this in this stone. So we started working with these local masons and tried to assemble a series of prototypes, not unlike maybe a dish that Ken is putting together, you know, testing it using some of our knowledge of masonry construction, using kind of lo local practice and, you know, getting to a place where we felt like the mock-up was um, was more in the direction of what we hoped for in the design. And then when they went about building this stone wall, they kind of, kind of we worked it out in situ. Built 
like hundreds of square square feet of this stone wall and wrapped this entire building in. I remember by the time they got around to the same corner, they were so good at putting the stone together, they asked if they could take down the original wall and like rebuild it with this more refined um, masonry. And it is a totally inspiring thing. And when you see it, you know, when you see this wall, I just always go back to it because it reminds me that, uh, it reminds me of things my dad taught me in building our house, but also that like hands cut these stones. You know, these are folks touched every single corner of these of these stones. This is made by this community. And it reminds you that like, yeah, architecture is formed from from a place. It gives me great inspiration, and it's sort of the inspiration that I think we've tried to take to all of the other architectural projects we've worked on since. And help us see the connection to health impacts. So, what uh, happens architecturally that actually enables a facility to make people healthier or less healthy if it doesn't happen? There's so many overlaps in, in terms of what our health metrics might be with the building. But in this case, in particular, Dr. Farmer and his team were really focused on a couple of diseases that were emerging again in especially resource-limited areas. So tuberculosis, a disease which we had largely figured out how to solve in, in, in the U.S. Um, uh, over the course of the last century, has reemerged in very um, resource-poor settings with a virulence. Uh, like and, Rwanda. Like Rwanda. And in Haiti and in Peru and elsewhere, where there's a drug-resistant strands of, of TB that are emerging, and TB is a disease that gets transmitted through the airborne route. So I might, you know, be uh, infected with TB, cough in the air. You might be in an unventilated hallway with me, and then you are, say, immunosuppressed, um, and you uh, inhale that TB, and then you get infected with it. And you might have another strand of TB and, and inhale a different drug-resistant strand and, and create this sort of super strand of drug-resistant TB. So it was, the, it was the ventilation or lack of ventilation or lack of design of infection control of these medical facilities, which was actually helping to incubate and cultivate these diseases. And so there's quick and simple solutions to that. Increase ventilation, uh, you know, create spaces where people are waiting outside and it's comfortable, you know, demand that the, the, there's no hallways in a hospital, for example. So we designed a, ho- a hospital without any hallways. The hallways are outside? All the hallways are outside. You know, so there's no, so the kind of riskiest places for infection we tried to mitigate and reduce. And what do you do about things like, uh, again, like air conditioning and, and things like that? Yeah, so in a place like Rwanda where the climate is, you know, like perfect, it's like Southern California, there is actually air conditioning is not necessary. It's It gets a little cold in the mountains, so sometimes, you know, if it's a little cooler, we'll bring out blankets for folks, you know. But, um, you know, before air conditioning, hospitals were designed with infection control in mind. You go back to old, you know, hospitals of the turn of the century, huge windows, um, floor-to-ceiling windows, uh, large uh, spaces from the interior in hot climates, you know, so that air would move and mix more freely. So architects used to know how to deal with natural ventilation, uh, but once we started sealing buildings and conditioning air and, you know, giving that to engineers to figure out, we really separated our, our kind of inter- the knowledge that we have about building something for a place and a climate and a culture. And um, I think we need to kind of remember some of those old skills. Ken, as we're talking about the kind of the social impacts that um, can be had, chefs are primarily chefs, but so many of them uh, are now social activists as well. They're involved in their community in lots of different ways. You've been involved with Share Strength and Anti-Hunger 
activities. How do you think about that role as a, as a restaurateur, somebody who's got all the responsibilities of running a successful business, but is also uh, being asked to participate in so many different ways in the community? Well, I think it's uh, it's a vital necessity skill of being a chef. I mean, we're we're leaders, and uh, and the common denominator of anybody in the world is uh, is food, and we can bring so many people together, and uh, and people will spend a lot of money for it. So I think in terms of again fundraising, uh, you know, whether it be to raise money for you know the Red Cross, uh, you know, with something that happens in Haiti or or for any for any cause, I think uh, we can get people, we can get chefs together because they're always uh, they have that uh, DNA to take care of people. We can call up and get ten chefs to say, okay, let's raise money for this cause, and then uh, they'll jump uh, jump in and say, okay, when I'll do it, and then we can charge, you know, from you know, 150 to thousands of dollars per person to put together a fundraiser and be able to send this money over uh, quite quickly. And I think um, not many industries have the type of people that uh, that want to make uh, an impact that quickly. And I think uh, it's important for us because uh, it's it's easy when you really think about it. And uh, and I think if we can get more and more and more people. Uh, Acting upon that, you know, like Jose Andres, what he what he just did is in Puerto Rico is beyond, uh, you know, the the scope. How he was able to rally so many people to help out and and make things happen, again without basically, you know, without even thinking about it, he was able to feed hundreds of thousands of people uh, just with uh, with chefs helping out. I think I like it's the notion amazing. of DNA to take care of people, as as your words just put it, which is I think so true. For most chefs and restaurateurs, that's that's I guess that's part of the hospitality, part of the nurturing, part of the the cooking that you do, and it translates Absolutely. into these I mean, other areas. That's why I think most of us got into this business because that's how we express ourselves through our food and through our cooking, and uh, and we are here to please people every day, every every person that walks in the door. How do you pick and choose? How do you decide in a world of finite resources, finite time? You've only got so much time and so much money and so much food. How do you decide what to get involved in and what not? I mean, again, we get so many calls every day, but it really has to just be things that are near and dear to you. And uh, sometimes it, it hurts to, to say no but because we only have so much time. But uh, um, but it's really where you can make the most impact and, uh, and figure out how you can get uh, these things to really uh, go into uh, the cause right away because sometimes people don't aren't organized enough where you can raise money, but uh, the money really doesn't get to where it needs to fast enough. And I think uh, as long as people have a good game plan, uh, again, I'm willing to help out it pretty much anywhere I can. Michael, do you feel the same kind of, um, I guess, I don't know, pressure, responsibility to scale what you're doing? We've talked about some of the places you've worked, but there's so many places uh, in the world that are in need. You work through an organization called Mass Design. Is that correct? Tell us a little bit about Mass Design and I guess what it's in your ambitions are to take some of the successes you've had and help them reach other places. Yeah, so Mass is an acronym that stands for uh, a model of architecture that serves society. And our focus is on, is on the service aspect of it. Uh, my goal is actually not to build buildings. That's not like why we get up every day. We get up because we see architecture as a crucial piece of the infrastructure uh, of our daily lives and a systems approach to how we live, a, you know, either a more productive or less productive life. 
And so when I think about the kind of work that we want to do, we want to work on big systems and help improve them, you know, and help make them more effective, uh, make them more beautiful. So a hospital is an incredible system, right? It's a, it's a working, functioning, living thing. Um, but it's only, in my mind, successful if, if we've designed it well enough to influence, let's say, medical policy for how we're designing hospitals in the future. Um, so when I think about the kind of projects I want to work on in the future, I want to want to work with innovators and thought leaders or organizations that are doing real big system change work and help them with their spatial constraints. Uh, so Jose Andres is a great example. Like this, he's a chef, he does amazing food, but he goes down and he creates this huge system innovation. He figures out how to you know, feed hundreds of thousands of people. Like how did he do that? You know, what kind of brilliant evolution in his thinking about, you know, creating a dish to creating hundreds of thousands of dishes and the whole supply chain that's required to, to do that, um, did, did he solve for? And there's an art, there are spatial opportunities there that could improve or help facilitate what he had done and make it more ingrained. We seem to be living in an era where natural disasters are coming closer and closer together, whether it's hurricanes or wildfires. From the perspective of a designer and an architect, is there an opportunity to rebuild in ways that are better than maybe uh, what even existed before? Yeah, I mean, I think architects do provide an incredible amount of uh, different solutions to um, some of the more extreme uh, climatic and weather events that we're seeing these days. And uh, and, and in fact, they're necessary to be at the table, I think, to, to think about the kind of societies we want to live in, the, the spaces we want to live in that can be more resilient to these changes in the future. Um, so there's an incredible amount of work going on in large-scale regional planning uh, around um, seawater rise and, you know, uh, around the world, but in New York City, a number of great architects are doing that kind of work and landscape architects. Um, but I think in, in, in terms of situations like what we saw in Puerto Rico or in the Caribbean and disaster relief, there are... A lot of architectural nonprofits that have worked in the disaster relief space and uh, have found you know, quick, uh, deployable uh, solutions uh, to uh, the, the crisis of displacement, uh, the, the destruction of housing and crucial infrastructure, and trying to deploy people really rapidly to try to assist in the, let's say, the immediate term. We worked uh, in Haiti for some time uh, after the earthquake, but also after the cholera epidemic. And what we found was there was also a space needed for architects to look at what we might call the medium term. You know, there's not a lot of money going into the long term, right? The, the, for example, the, the Haitian National Palace is still destroyed. You know, it had to be cleared. It's still not rebuilt. Um, but in the medium term, there was an opportunity, we thought, to sort of take some of the disaster relief fu funding and deploy it into medical or, like, let's say, uh, medical or educational infrastructure that would be necessary for the period after uh, the disaster relief kind of dies down and every all the... Uh, NGOs leave. Uh, so um, we worked with a great Haitian uh, medical organization called Jeskio, uh, who uh, was interested in building a the first permanent cholera treatment center in the country. There was a lot of emergency work going on to build uh, temporary cholera treatment tents. We worked with them to build a, a permanent one, or at least a, a permanent for a, a period of a period of years that could serve this long term problem after the kind of disaster subsided. So we're very interested in kind of trying to fill in the whole, that whole space. You know, there's a, there's an immediate need, there's medium-term need, and then there's long-term needs, and architects play a role in all of this. And it's even in, you know, the public school system. You know, it's like, you know, I've been doing some work on uh, with the Boston public school system, and, uh, 
these old school archaic kitchens are you know pretty much the reason why the food is uh, is so lousy that we're, we're giving these kids everywhere and i think because uh, it can't be cooked i mean in no, most cases the no, kitchens it can't be cooked they have not, nothing and they when they do have a kitchen cook. it's uh you know equipment that is so heavy with no uh no real function and i think uh if we were to create these you know airy beautiful kind of fast casual model type uh, spaces where people can walk in and and feel uh, just welcome and friendly to work and, and to have the kids get excited to walk into a room and eat. I think that, you know, that's the start of, uh, of getting people, getting kids to really uh, be motivated by, by food and what they're eating and to understand how important it is uh, for their, you know, their development. And, See, this, uh, is a, this, is a, this is how we find projects. Yes. Well, this I, is an amazing project idea. Well, it's, it's an incredible project, and I was going to ask Ken about it because I just visited the P.J. Kennedy School in East Boston to see their kitchen because most schools in Boston, first of all, are in the Boston school system, our food has come from New York for the last 10 or 15 years. It's cooked, cooked on Long Island, frozen. Not, this is frozen, not thawed, even on point. Thawed yeah. and eaten here. God knows how much, how much longer after it's All cooked. processed. And so um, a number of folks have gotten involved in the idea of, you know, can we actually source healthy food and cook it and serve it to kids? Because when I went to school, we actually had kitchens in our cafeteria, and they did cook the food. But that's uh, what, what I'm describing in Boston is true all over the U.S. today. Schools just don't have kitchens. But in East Boston, uh, this school, the P.J. Kennedy School, was built in 1933. 1933 hadn't been renovated uh, in the last 50 years. Anyhow, you go in there, and they've got an amazing kitchen, and their big bragging right is that it was designed by Ken Oranger and Andy Husbands, who helped design it and come up with the um, source some of the um, supplies and the vendors and so forth. And these kids are eating amazing food. I mean, it's just like we we stood and watched the whole lunch hour, and it was incredible. And this I think is, you've done that in three schools now. In three schools, and again, we're talking, um, you know, with. Uh, with the mayor about being able to take over, uh, you know, at least 30 to 50 more schools by next year. And then uh, hopefully eventually, um, you know, every school in the, in the Boston uh, school system. So I think, but we need to create a commissary, you know, because obviously not all these uh, schools will have the facilities, but to create a commissary where we can have uh, people be excited uh, that we can lure from all over the country to come, uh, you know, work the mission and, and, and as I've mentioned, you know, to have something architecturally, you know, like uh, a warehouse with no, uh, with basically all skylights and no walls where it's all windows that uh, can have, again, little areas that are kind of wide open, like a, almost like a freeform workspace that, uh, that people can, can be excited about. And it could be something that we can use as a model to show other, uh, you know, other cities in the country that... Uh, we can have kind of this happy place that uh, people can come cook, and uh, and it could be inspirational for the students to be able to come, see what it's like, and uh, where their food is coming from, and uh, and it, to me, it just makes perfect sense. My big test at P.J. Kennedy was to walk around and look at the trash barrels and see what was in them, because sometimes you see that the whole lunch has been thrown away, and at P.J. Kennedy, none of it had been thrown away. It was just the you know the little cardboard trays, but the kids had eaten everything, and it was pretty healthy food. So, Michael, are you in on this project? No, it sounds or, amazing. Or you it's exactly the kind of thing that inspires me. You know, to say if we can solve it in one place, can it affect an entire system like the whole city of Boston? You know, and then the design questions start to emerge there. Like, what does it look like? How do you make? How do you reveal the invisible? DNA of this of this mission, which I think going back to your window into the kitchen is a really good example. Like, let's reveal the the 
the processes and uh, the functionality of this in a beautiful and dignified way that inspires people to do something else and learn from it. And so can we could see over the summer another potentially 30 to 50 schools being renovated in the Boston area, which would be Absolutely. really be pretty revolutionary. Um, Michael, so did, did, in terms of the needs that we're talking about, do they find you? Do you find them as a little bit of both? How do you, how do you and Mass Design pick projects? Yeah, it's a, it's a little of both. You know, we get we get calls uh, from folks from around the world who have seen or been introduced to our work, um, but we also uh, we also crowdsource our team, and so we have uh, nine directors of amazing uh, designers from who've come to join us. And well, twice a year we sit down in a company retreat, um, and we say, you know, who are the most inspiring change agents uh, that you know, organizations or individuals? Where are the most where are the places that you think uh, definitely could use the services of, of our organization or, or architecture and design? Uh, so places, people, and and projects. We and we kind of do some crowdsourcing and, and and think about that. And you know, it's been incredible to see our team who are working all over the world you know, pick inspiring folks and inspiring projects, and then we donate our services a lot of times to them. Um, so we're technically a nonprofit organization, five hundred one c three, and so it gives us the ability to commit to organizations that are doing incredible social change work but may not have the resources to sort of do the design briefs, do all the early pre-design work necessary to move their idea into fruition. So how does mass design get funded? So we are we're funded through normal architectural philanthropy. Uh, revenue we get oh, both okay. revenue and oh, okay. philanthropy. So yeah. we raise about half of our annual revenue through philanthropy and grants and that allows us to, you know, commit our resources to organizations that need that service and can't pay for it. Um, so we're, you know, design nonprofits are, are not, there's not many of them, but we think there should be many more of them because a, a, a big barrier uh, to organizations like a school, like a single school in Boston might have this brilliant idea and, man, it, you know, doesn't have the resources to, say, hire an architect to come up with the plans and renderings to move it into a, an idea uh, that could get funded. And so we help organizations in that phase to, to get funding. When, uh, Ken, you walked into P.J. Kennedy or one of the other East Boston schools, did you think, oh, this is a disaster, this place is 100 years old, I don't know if I can help it, or you know, it was like, no, this is a solvable problem? I try to walk in anywhere with it's a solvable problem, and I think uh, we were lucky, uh, you know, with uh, the Shaw Foundation uh, that's been spearheading all of this, that, uh, again, they uh, they have some, some resources and a lot of uh, wonderful people that... Uh, have been willing to donate uh, certain pieces of equipment and funds, and so we were able to uh, to get like combi ovens, for instance, which is something that uh, can steam, can can roast, uh, can do pretty much anything to hold food. Combi, that, combi meaning like a combination oven can yeah. do all these different things. Yeah. So, uh, but it's all computer operated, so you can fry a French fry. Not that that's nutritious, but fry like you know a French fry. In basically an oven um, where it'll be easy to clean and and it'll be twenty times faster than uh, anybody trying to fry French fries in a deep fryer. So it saves uh, a ton of time. It's actually more nutritious to be able to cook the food that way. And uh, instead of having three people uh, doing one task, you can have one person do a task and uh, and do it so much faster. So we're able to get uh, these combi ovens donated. We were able to. Um, again, kind of streamline and train people to be able to just press a button. So it takes the um, pretty much the chance of error. Uh, you never eliminate it, but it, uh, when you put a piece of chicken in there and you press the button where it's programmed to cook a piece of roasted chicken, 
then uh, all they have to do is press that, and uh, and you don't need experts with uh, thermometers to test when the kit when the chicken is done. They can just kind of uh, use this program. So I think uh, in terms of having people that aren't professional chefs, it's great because it takes a lot of the margin of error out of it, and it's a model of efficiency. The chef at PJ Kennedy is named uh, Santiago Santi, and uh, that combi oven was his pride and joy. He he uh, could he have talked it. to us about it all <laughs> afternoon. He loves it. Fantastic. And uh, the Shaw Foundation, I should mention, is Jill and Niraj, Nir Shaw. Um, they actually live in Back Bay. Their kids went to Kingsley Montessori when they were young, and that's how I got to know them because my son went there as well. But they're an amazing family, and they're really committed to making a difference in the Boston schools and making sure kids eat healthy and nutritious food. And their leadership has been a, uh, it's been a, um, a game changer, really. And this is just the beginning. Again, we, uh, we have a lot of momentum and... Uh, a lot of, again, they know so many people, we know so many people, and it's just, uh, again, we're pretty focused to really changing this. So, Michael, Ken and I know a lot of chefs who do what Ken does, which is get involved in the community in a pretty big way. Are there a lot of architects doing what you're doing? Is, does Mass Design have competitors or collaborators? Or uh, I wanna, The more I learned about it, the more unique, if that's the appropriate phrase, um, I, I felt it was. Who else is doing what you're doing? I mean, I actually think, I mean, architects uh, become architects, certainly not for the paycheck. When I say that we're a nonprofit, most architects say, oh, so are we. Yeah. <laughs> Which is uh, just to say that we don't get paid, I think, commensurate with the amount of time and labor that goes into the work. It's a passion industry. And I think almost everyone I know gets into it because they want to make a positive impact in the world, most broadly. The question is, is where are the pipeline of projects and partners that allow that to happen? And we want to open up that pipeline uh, a little bit. We want to remind organizations that feel like they're strapped with cash that they too deserve great design. And in fact, great design could assist them in delivering their mission and their services better. We want to remind the public sector that, you know, um, are, there are incredible designers out there that could help with you know, public housing, affordable housing, public space design, um, uh, open up opportunities inside of organizations to think about how they're working more effectively. I mean, we have an incredible amount of, uh, uh, of services that we can provide to the world. We just have to open up those pathways and remind people that it's available. And what's, uh, what's next for you? What's the next project? Uh, well, we're really excited about uh, uh, our first project in Boston here. We're building 130 units of affordable housing in Mattapan. Uh, with some great local uh, CDCs, Nuestra Comunidad and uh, POA, which are great, incredible uh, nonprofit developers here in Boston. Um, we're working on uh, a large, uh, a couple of projects. We're working on an, uh, a huge agricultural university in Rwanda, which is from the ground up, a whole school of agriculture, uh, which is incredible for the, for the next generation of um, uh climate change, knowledgeable farmers, and sort of activist farmers. So that's really, really What do they primarily farm in Rwanda? Like, what would the agriculture focus on? Uh, Rwanda has, actually, is, is very uh, verdant. I mean, so there's, uh, you know, they're farming an enormous amount of different products, but everything from, you know, there's pineapples to uh, to sorghum to, um, uh, to even rice in the country. So there's a, a lot of different products that are, are being farmed. Can any new restaurants in the works? <laughs> There's probably always uh, a new one in the works. No, right now, um, just uh, pretty content where we are. And just uh, you never know when the right opportunity comes. Uh, 
we'll see what happens. But just, uh, again, trying to put a lot of energy into the Boston Public School uh, idea. And, um, again, we'll see, uh, we'll see where that takes us. I think that's going to be an important one, just given all the schools we work uh, within at Share Our Strength. Uh, there aren't many places where this notion of really building workable school kitchens is taking place. There's organizations that are coming in and finding ways to work with commissaries and create um, better food that's delivered to the schools. But the notion of cooking it at schools, um, I think it'd be very exciting. It's kind of coming full circle to where we once were, but it could make a big difference in, in kids' lives. Well, it makes so much sense. Again, with the technology that we have now, there's no reason why we can't uh, create something. And do... Um, how do architects think about um, uh, issues like, as you were talking about agriculture, Michael? I guess you know, building a university, designing a university makes sense, but I don't. I, I haven't thought about architects being involved in uh, such issues. I guess everything is game for an architect, right? Every issue, whether it's maternal health, whether it's uh, control of infectious disease, whether it's uh, enhancing agricultural development, architects do it all. I mean, I, I think as designers, you can get involved in any number of scales from, you know, the scale of uh, organizational consultation to uh, the design of furniture or products to the building itself, and then a scale bigger into planning and urban design, as well as into large scale regional planning like agriculture. Uh, we have planners, uh, industrial designers, uh, landscape architects on our team. So we have, we, we do sometimes get pulled into looking at the, the ways in which system design gets scaled much larger into, let's say, regional planning. And uh, we're working with an incredible farm uh, up in upstate New York, actually outside of Kingston, which does um, is an organic farm and is a nonprofit that's trying to uh, show farmers a better way to f farm, and they need a design of their, their, their farm, their buildings, and uh, their site planning. And so we've been working with them on that to kind of get into this category of food justice, which is a big question for us. So we kind of break down where we're going to intervene into a couple of categories, but we've been looking at uh, questions of incarceration in America. I can't think of any space more problematic in the world, but in particular in our country, uh, that needs redesign, uh, spaces of uh, health, healthier spaces, and spaces of education. We've done a number of schools uh, to think about how can better school design improve educational outcomes. So these are all areas that are ripe for thinking, and I'm just, you know, I want to meet good amazing people who are trying to challenge the way we understand these systems and to see if we can assist them in their goal and their mission. So the best way for our listeners to learn more about uh, each of you, best way for Ken is just to walk into Toro, right? Walk into Uni, walk into any one of your uh, restaurants. There's, I don't know if you have a website as well, but I think there's no substitute for walking into your restaurants, right, Ken? Absolutely. Or stand at the window at Uni, <laughs> like you described. Okay. The best way to reach me is KenArnger.com, which is O-R-I-N-G-E-R. Okay, so Michael, give us the best way uh, to contact you or to learn more about Mass Design. What's the best website? Uh, our website is www.massdesigngroup.org. And if you go on to TED Talks and search Michael Murphy, Buildings you'll heal. find yeah. a really great 20-minute <laughs> yeah. TED Talk. It's, it's, I'll be it, listening to that today. It's really, worth, sure. it's really worth watching. It really is. Thanks. So, uh, Michael Murphy, thanks for being thank with us. Thank you so much. And Ken Oranger, thank you. And can't wait thank to, you, Billy. Can't wait to come in again soon. Such a pleasure. Thanks. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. 
At Passion and Stirs, the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall. 